Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. When we were planning the schedule for the month, Don, I don't know <laughs> that I fully grasped the amount of Kennedy coverage that would encompass the world in the previous two weeks. Yeah, no kidding. And we're possibly presenting a show that everyone is quite sick of at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are sick of uh, talking about Kennedy and the impact that Kennedy had on the sports world and the impact that the assassination has had on the world, eh, might not be the show for you this week. Hmm. Right. Uh, we have a very interesting show. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 35 of the Sportscasters. It's November 26, 2013, just a couple days before Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you won't be uh, listening to this in an airport on the floor in the 12th hour you've been waiting in said airport for a plane. Yeah, in the Northeast, that might be the case for sure. Uh, we uh, have a different type of podcast this week. It'll be the same in the sense that we're going to kick it off with three things, and we're going to have the greatest of all time, and we're going to do a book club update. We're going to end with one last thing, and we're going to have two interviews like we normally do. And one of those interviews is going to feel quite similar. It's going to be with Tim Layden, senior writer from Sports Illustrated, making his third appearance on the show. Mr. Layden is one of the all-time great sports writers, and it's always a privilege to have him in. He had an article this week in Sports Illustrated about the commissioner's decision to play the games in the National Football League the week after the Kennedy assassination. The American Football League, this was pre-merger, decided not to play their games. Some colleges decided to play, some colleges decided not to. Uh, the NHL and the NBA mostly played. The NFL also decided to play including a Dallas Cowboys team that played in Cleveland, which was not the most welcoming to the Cowboys players, as if they had taken a part in the assassination in Dallas, which of course they hadn't. And a really interesting fight occurred in a team meeting between two Philadelphia Eagles players, and Mr. Layden writes about that in this week's Sports Illustrated. We're going to talk to him about the assassination and the impact that it had on sports, and also check in with Mr. Layden in general. He hasn't been on in a while, uh, but he's going to tell us about all the other things going on in his world as a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. And then something quite different, uh, Larry Sabato, who's an author of one of our book club books of the month, The Kennedy Half Century, one that Don, Don's been reading page by page right. of the 600, <laughs> uh, is going to be on to talk to us about conspiracies and all the other things you hear about with the Kennedy assassination. So if you're quite sick of this, I'm sorry. I promise a regular sports show next week. And you can always check back from two weeks ago where we had Artie Lang on, or you can listen to last week's with Katie Baker. And you can find those on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. 
Before we get to any of that, we're going to do what we always do and kick things off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. On the count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. So it's an always interesting position when you watch your team play Thursday night football and then say, oh, every other NFL team is going to play two games before my team plays again. As the Saints are on Monday night football this week in what I think I can safely say without any bias is the game of the week. The Saints travel to Seattle, a place where things aren't exactly friendly for, (laughs) for visiting teams, and they play the Seahawks. On Monday Night Football, a much better game than the folks had last night night on Monday Night Football with the Redskins suffering through a disastrous defeat at the hands of the uh, 49ers. But uh, what do you think when you hear Saints-Seahawks on Monday, Don? Well, I think they're basically polar opposites. I think that the strength of the team is going to be on the field at the same time. So when the New Orleans offense, obviously, and the Saints-D are on the field, and then they both, I don't, I don't know what the ratings are, but I imagine Seattle's offense is probably middle of the road and the Saints' defense is probably somewhere in the middle of the road too. So it's an interesting matchup of strength versus strength. Yeah, tickets, the lowest ticket you can get right now on StubHub for the upper corner 302 row Y, which has got to be pretty high up there, is $272.60. Wow. So tickets are going. It's going to be a huge night in Seattle. And uh, I'm sure everyone will be watching. We talked about this kind of off the air. Uh, you mentioned the week when they, the Saints played the Bills. That was a terrible week because if they win, every, that's what they're supposed to do. If they lose, then you're going to hear it from everyone around here that knows you're a Saints fan. That said, I think this game's the opposite. I think this is a free game. Yep. Uh, one they're probably expected to lose a little bit. I mean, they're they're a six point dog right now on the road. Uh, if they lose. No harm, no foul. They end up tied with Carolina, who they play twice still. And those are the real the real big tests left on their schedule. Not that this isn't a test, but this isn't this isn't necessarily must win. Yeah, the loss isn't gonna hurt them in terms of the conference and buys. We kinda talked about that. Right. How they're not gonna have to worry about that this week per se. And the division is gonna be won or lost in the Carolina games and the Saints in Carolina, their first game just got flexed. It's a Sunday night football. So if Carolina can come into New Orleans and beat us where we haven't lost, I think, in 13 straight night games, then they probably deserve the division. And I'll have to accept that they're a better team than us. In the meantime, we kind of got a free roll game here against Seattle. If we win it, we're probably considered the best team in the National Football League. And if we lose it, good showing. Well, tough, tough, tough place to play in Seattle. And, you know, you got another shot in the NFC Championship game, maybe. How interested are you in the Packers game if uh – Rodgers doesn't play, which it sounds like he won't, although he did practice today. I'm still interested because I think that with Rodgers playing, the Packers are just a much better team than the Lions, sure. and maybe it swings it the other way. What a bummer that the Packers now, what, it's been three games without Rodgers? Yeah, they're 0-3-1 in the okay, games so without Okay, so four him. games. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's a that might include playoff. That might include the game he got hurt in. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a bummer for them. That. It's got to suck as a fan. To Still, it's we've sat through some really bad twelve thirty Lions games on Thanksgiving. 
Sure. And this isn't that. No, I'd probably rather watch that than the 4.30 Cowboys-Raiders game. I, I mean, I'm sure I'll, the TV will be on all of these all day. But, right. And the last game of the night is actually pretty solid. Steelers-Ravens, who both have kind of... It's almost like turn the, it around. It's but. the game to take control of maybe that last spot in the AFC, which sure. is logjam with all kinds of five think, and six ish teams. I think if you're a Bills fan, you want the Ravens to win that game because you beat them, right? So if you end up tied with them somehow, there's a lot of scenarios. The ESPN has that playoff simulator thing that's really fun. Uh, you pick the winners of all the games for the rest of the way, and they would tell you who would make the playoffs based on uh, tiebreakers and whatnot. And there's a lot of scenarios where an eight and eight team could get in. And some of those even involve the Bills getting in at eight and eight. Well, if you look at the Bills' schedule, they should be seven and seven, right? Won't they be favored the next three weeks? Yeah, they play. They play Atlanta at home this week, which Atlanta is Atlanta at home in Toronto, right? Eliminated from the playoffs, right? They play Tampa Bay in Tampa and then at Jacksonville. Yeah, you'd like to think they can win both of those games. If they're a playoff team, they'll win those games. Sure, and then you play the Dolphins, who you've already beat. On the road. At home in December. At home in December. And then you got New England in New England. So hopefully that game doesn't mean anything to the Patriots, but it looks like it probably will. It's not crazy to think the Bills could make a run at 9-7. and seven. Still a long shot for a team with a quarterback that inexperienced right. to win five straight games like that. But it's not... Like we're sitting here a couple of days before Thanksgiving, saying Bill's season is completely over. Right, it's a different. Far from that. It's for a four and seven team. It's a terrible record, but uh, they something feels different about them this year. So this is a different four and seven team, different quarterback, different coach. Uh, I'm still optimistic, as bad as the record is, and it might sound like loser talk, but that that's where the Bills have put us over the last couple decades. A couple interesting games Sunday at one o'clock. The Titans suddenly five and six, playing the plummeting. Maybe is the word Colts, who are at seven and four. Titans can maybe make this a division if they were to win this game. You still got to think that, you know, they're feeling pretty safe, especially after beating the Titans thirty to twenty-seven last week. The Colts all of a sudden can't stop anybody. Yeah, uh, they gave up thirty-eight points to St. Louis, then twenty-seven points in a win to Tennessee, and now forty points in a loss to Arizona. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, these aren't exactly powerhouse offenses that are doing it to them. I, I don't follow the Colts closely enough to know the intricacies of what's going on there on defense, but man, they they can't stop anybody. The surging Cardinals are going to Philadelphia to play the Eagles, who are six and five and currently in first place in the horrible. How how weird is it? NFC that, East. That AF that NFC West is. Probably the best division of football. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. I mean, how it's a total flip. Of, and people were ready to bail on that division a little bit early in the season. Right, because San Francisco started a little So did slow. Arizona and yeah. St. Louis, obviously. And Which division is the worst? Is it the NFC, NFC East? East? Is it the NFC Could be the North? AFC East. If it wasn't or is it the AFC, AFC East is pretty South. Big. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The AFC South. Boy, yeah, Houston dropping off there. The AFC is just really weak. I mean, they have two of those divisions with only one good team between the two. And maybe the biggest game on Sunday is Broncos at Chiefs, the rematch. The Chiefs are in trouble with injuries. I don't know if Houston or Tomba are going to be playing or not. We'll have to see about that. I think the the Chiefs are going to be in a lot of trouble if the Broncos beat them this week by 21. There's going to just be a lot of yeah, and we, we questioning ta- themselves, and it's another weird schedule. Like we we're talking about the, the Saints have Carolina three times in three or two times in three weeks. This is kind of the same thing with the Chiefs and Broncos. I don't know why that worked out that way this year, but uh, we talked about that after the 
Chiefs game in Denver where if they go out and lose by 20, they're probably still who we thought they were. And then if they hold, as long as they hold their own in the home game, and they didn't, they actually played a pretty respectable game that game, but then they've lost again. And now they get, like you said, they got the injuries and Denver coming off a loss. I don't know. I know Arrowhead is a nice home field advantage for them, but this, this plays like a tough game. I'm not sure how this works out for them. If you need a break from football Sunday nights, maybe not a bad time to do it with Giants at Redskins. 4-7 <laughs> versus 3-8. and eight. Not a lot of intrigue there. And then we talked about the big game. You know who has to be about – You know, if I could pick a fan base, and I'm going to say I'm kind of starting on the ground floor with a fan base. I'm not going to say like New England, New Orleans, like these teams are already winners. If I wanted to pick a fan base right now to be excited about, it would be St. Louis. If you're the Rams, you two have picks. two picks. Two big picks. One of them is one win away from being the number one overall pick in the Redskins. Uh, and they look terrible. Really bad. And Jacksonville has looked better. And who's the other low Tampa. Team? Tampa. Minnesota, I guess, is maybe a tough one. And Houston and Atlanta. But uh, the Redskins look really, really bad. Like, maybe won't win another game bad. And St. Louis fans have got to be thrilled. Yeah, absolutely. One one last thing before we move on to Bengals Chargers is a good game too. I mean, we didn't really mention that, but Chargers got a nice win against Kansas City. They're maybe the team to beat for that wild card spot. Uh, even though they're probably technically not in that spot right now, but they are five and six, and I feel like they're a better team than the, some of the other five and six teams. So interesting uh, team this year. If you're a fantasy player, Philip Rivers has been a had a resurgence kind of this year in his career, which is strange after losing a lot of the weapons at receiver. But, uh, yeah, he's he's been really impressive. Before we move on, what did you think of uh, the big gag by the uh, by the Broncos? Did you bow on that game? Were you there? Yeah, I did. Uh, I didn't watch it. So I saw the beginning of, of it? it. I saw the beginning of it, yeah. And it looked like the Broncos – you know what? Actually, I did watch the end of it. It was the – the punt, whatever. Yeah, it was almost looking like we were going to have another tie game. Two tie games in one week, but right. then the muff punt. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought, to some extent, their game plan worked great. No, Sean Moreno had like 200 yards rushing. They they couldn't. Someone has said, uh, I don't remember who it was, but that the reason Peyton Manning has so many good running backs is because Peyton Manning doesn't run the ball in bad scenarios. You know, he always looks at the defense and puts you in the best case scenario when you're running back. Uh, Moreno benefited from that that game at 200 yards rushing. Manning wasn't very good, but that defense is it should be better than than they are. And playing in the elements, it should favor the defense a little bit, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that's old school thinking. What did you think about Brady for basically back to back weeks going all out pout mode on the field to the refs? Did you see this? He I runs up did. 20 Why? yards up the field to oh, the refs. Oh, for pass interference. Yeah. Yeah, I, could you ever see Manning doing that? Could you see Breeze doing that? Yeah, I don't know. I guess no. I wouldn't see that from those guys, but uh, I don't know what to think of him. I think if he's not your guy, you kind of hate him, and he tends to get a lot of calls too. But if I don't hate him, and I he, think he's a great quarterback and a good leader, I think if you're a Boston fan, you probably or a New England fan, you probably just say he's fiery. He, fiery. he wants to win that bad that. He's so into the game. Because, like, again, we talked last week about how he went crazy dropping F-bombs on the ref, and then in the press conference it's all, yeah, we left a lot of yep. plays out <laughs> on the field and all that stuff. So, 
All right. Uh, second thing today for me, Derek Rose, come back over. Ten games yeah. played after a long rehabilitation for an ACL injury on his left knee. And uh, just on Monday, the Bulls announced that he underwent successful surgery to repair a medial meniscus tear in his right knee and will miss the remainder of the season. So, I don't know. It's just it's one of those careers. He's only 25 years old. He's had significant knee injuries now to both knees. He makes $17 million this season. He's got three more years remaining on a five-year $94 million Jeez. deal, and there's just a really good chance he's just never going to be the same. It must have been on Reddit where I saw it, but uh, someone posed the question, was there ever a more talented player with this type of injury history? I mean, Sabres fans had Tim Connolly, but he wasn't – he was never considered in the MVP. Like, this guy, if you look at the Vegas odds, was near the top of the list for MVP candidates if you wanted to put some money down at the beginning of the year. And now this is twice he's had season-ending injuries. And I couldn't come up with a guy that had more potential. And, like, potential he's shown on the floor, too, not just potential. That Yeah, the Bulls have been through this before with a point guard, Jason Williams from Duke. Okay. Uh, who was a high pick that came in, had injury problems. Bobby Hurley, who's now the coach at UB basketball, right, right. got in a really disastrous car accident that basically ended his career with Sacramento. And I'm sure there's a couple that were missing. Maybe someone like, uh, geez. I mean, Lemieux. Kajana Carter. Lemieux had some ugly injuries, but he had a career, Hall of Fame career still. Anyway, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, get well, D. Rose. Yeah. My second thing, Ron Burgundy. Uh, I don't believe this has been made official by anybody at ESPN, but we'll be co-hosting SportsCenter on December 5th. I think that's a Thursday at 6 p.m. And it's a Thursday. So uh, really set your DVRs. Really exciting. Yep. You can sign me up for that. His uh, his his audition for ESPN, it, it, oh, kind, yeah. it kind of surprises me that ESPN is willing to give him another shot because I don't know if people realize, but uh, Ron – was a an early auditioner for ESPN, and uh, it didn't go well, if you recall. Yeah, he thought the idea of an all sports network was crazy. I believe. Did you? Did you? Uh, have you seen any of the new trailers? You got any thoughts for the movie? How does it have to be good to, quote unquote, live up to expectations? Like, where do you kind of stand on Anchorman Two? I don't know. Uh, Is there any chance it's not a disappointment? Oof. Are they doing too much promotion? I like the truck commercials. Those truck are, commercials are great. Those are pretty silly. Uh, boy, they never live up to the hype. I, I don't know. I just hope it's not terrible. If it's not terrible, I'll be happy. It's more more Anchorman is is more good stuff. So I actually have a couple seconds of that Ron Burgundy audition. Yes, yeah, oh, okay, check it cool. out. Mr. Burgundy, I want to yes. thank you for coming out here to uh, Connecticut to do this audition. Thank you for having me. Basically, how it's going to work is we're going to have you do uh, maybe about two or three minutes of a, a mock broadcast. What, uh, what is the name of this network again? Uh, ESPN? No, no, ESPN. That's a terrible name. Hello, <laughs> sports fans. I'm Ron Burgundy, here at the desk of ESPN. And there were some things going on in sports today that will make your brain fall out of your skull. Yeah, it didn't go great. It was uh, no. It started it was, off bad right away, <laughs> and I think it ends with him throwing a stool on the table and telling him the network is run by children. That's right. I do remember that. Yeah. All right. My third thing today. I talked about the NBA and Derrick Rose and how he will probably not meet his Hall of Fame potential. The Major League Baseball writers who declined to name anyone into the Hall of Fame last year 
are in that position again where they have a ballot now. A 36-player ballot includes Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, Frank Thomas, and of course the guys who were ignored last year like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mark Guire, Sammy Sosa. Uh, Mike Messina's on the ballot. Eric Gagne is on the ballot. JT Snow, Richie Sexton. So 36 guys, some of whom have higher Hall of Fame credentials than others. Uh, they, they were... Uh, they will be uh, due. The votes are due by December 31st, and it will be announced on January 8th. It'll Maddox be, has got to be a shoe-in. I would think that Maddox, Glavin, and Thomas are pretty close to automatic first-timers. I always used to like Frank Thomas. He was never connected with steroids at he all. He wasn't. Because right? he was a big boy, too. The interesting thing will be to see how close to unanimous Greg Maddox is. Yeah. He won't be unanimous because that's just players who – or voters who make it about themselves right. will vote against him because they don't vote anyone as a first ballot. Oh, okay. I should see if we can get someone who votes for this on the show. We've had people who vote in the past. Tom Verducci, probably our most famous one. Maybe we can track him down sometime between now and January 8th and see what's going going through everyone's mind as they I mean, get ready. Cena's is to... an interesting one to me. Uh, I Obviously, I'm not a big baseball guy, but I used to play fantasy baseball, and he was always kind of a guy that was good. Like, was he ever even? Does he have any Cy Youngs? No, I don't believe he has a Cy. So he's Young. never even been the best pitcher in his league. Yeah, I, I don't know. That that's a weird one to me. That's like uh, almost strikes me as like maybe Andre Reed's problem. Like, I think he's, I think Andre Reed probably deserves to be in, but the trouble now is he's going to butt up against guys that were the best in the league and arguably yeah Mucino only even had one 20 game 20 win season 21 season yeah, that's tough that's as his last season 20 and 9 in 2008 all right yeah that'd be interesting to hear from someone that does vote and so much old school thinking there like you said just not voting anyone in the first shot but ridiculous my last thing this week uh my third thing the nhl has an impending concussion lawsuit uh it's pretty much in its infancy still but they've named names uh, similar to the football thing, but they've gone beyond just naming the NFL. They've named Don Cherry is one of the guys named for his broadcast that kind of glorify hitting and fighting. And uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and I'm sure it won't get the press that the NFL lawsuit got and that eventually got settled. But it's interesting trying or interesting hearing about how they attempt to prove that the players were sent out knowingly sent out there without the players didn't have enough knowledge of concussions and that the coaches and stuff had more knowledge. And, Cause that's kind of what they argued. And that's why a lot of people think that the NFL players settled because they would have a tough time proving that. But uh, that's out there. It's a thing. The NHL concussion lawsuit, and I'm sure we'll hear more about it. As Three this... of the ten players used to play for the Sabres. Uh, Rick Vive and Richie Dunn are probably the most notable. Okay. And then there's a third guy who played a little bit. And it'll be interesting because there's at least a player or two of the ten named who didn't wear helmets. Even after the... Even after the rule was placed, say, mandating it. Yeah. I think if you're entering a class, law... class action lawsuit with some guys, you might want to leave out a fellow who ignored his own house. Right. right. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but this whole thing is not going away for any of the leagues, be my guess. And I wonder the NFL's response to this has meant the end of 
hitting to a large degree or hitting the way we remember hitting. I wonder if this will uh, result in the in hockey with the end of fighting or the way we remember fighting. Do you see the game where this is going back to the NFL thing? There was a game where a quarterback got sack stripped for a touchdown, I believe. And he got smacked hard in the head. It was a quarterback that left the game twice. Directly in the face, right? Yeah. It hit like straight on in the face mask and no call. It was the Browns game, I think, because it was Jason Campbell because he left the game twice. Yeah, straight in the face. Uh, boy, if people were mad about the Saints call the week before being kind of borderline, this was the total opposite. This was blatant. I don't know what, how many refs you need out there to not – I mean, he got – I thought he, I was surprised he came back into the game. I thought he was concussed because it was a pretty nasty shot to the face. But yeah, so uh, like you said, they try to take those hits out and they still miss them. So whatever. All right, we're gonna take a break and come back with Tim Layden. Our next guest is from Whitehall, New York, and is a graduate of Williams College, where he was a member of the basketball team. He has spent time working for the Schenectady Gazette, Albany Times Union, and Newsday. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He is making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Tim Layden. How are you doing today, Mr. Layden? Good. Very good to talk to you again. Yeah, very excited to have you on. It's been a bit. Always excited to, to get some time with you, and uh, it, it's it's interesting because we're actually taping this on what is the 50th anniversary of this assassination of President Kennedy, which I I don't know, I, maybe the 40th anniversary was, was 10 years ago, and I know that it was a big deal for sure, and, and the, it, it's even a big deal, I guess, when it's the 46th anniversary or last year when it was the 49th, but you can tell this year that there's a little bit of uh, extra attention being paid. And uh, it, it's so weird because I was in Dallas last week for the very first time, and I remember when I was flying out there, I was thinking about how excited I was to be in Daly Plaza and to uh, to see the Texas School Depository and the Grassy Knoll. And initially I was really excited to get my picture taken on, on the X there in the street. And when I got there and... I was standing there. I was like, I don't want to stand on that and get my picture taken. That's not that just didn't feel right all of a sudden and I think it's a really interesting thing when you're when you're quote unquote celebrating the 50th anniversary of a president and it's a really it, it it just all of a sudden felt awkward to me. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I think there's a couple things uh, it's it's a little bit um I did an interview yesterday where as the host was introducing me, he he said he used the phrase 50th anniversary and then he he kind of stopped and said, that seems uh, strange to use the term anniversary um, for something like this. And uh, and I would agree with that. At the same time, I think that a lot of people have, not everybody, but a lot of people have sort of used the uh, used the 50-year date as a uh, opportunity to write about uh, the legacy of the Kennedy pre- presidency, which has changed quite a bit over the years since he was killed, actually. And um, so I think that, you know, I, I, I do think having your picture taken on the grassy knoll is probably a little much, you know, but people do that kind of stuff all the time. Um, and it's just sort of, I guess if you go there and, and it's 2010, 11, 12, 13, and you have a smartphone camera, you're 
probably what you're going to do, and you may not give it much thought. It's honorable that you did. Yeah, I think maybe you know, 50 years ago, the actual the actual heaviness of it is taken out a little bit. Like you forget about about how incredibly massive it is to think that the sitting president of our country was assassinated. And I think the footage of it that we have is so incredibly graphic, but we've seen it so many times that it's almost like we've gotten to the point where we can watch it without cringing. But it's the most cringe-worthy video I've ever seen in my life. I was watching it this morning. There was a, a now HD slow motion video of the of the Zapruder film, and, and I about halfway through it, I, I was just trying to think of, you know, if something like that were to happen today, there's no doubt that we would have many views of it, like you said, with smartphones. There wouldn't just be this one grainy view, and I just. I can't even imagine, and and I I came to think about the maybe parallel moment in in my lifetime, which might be nine eleven, and sure. there's some pretty incredibly chilling video of that as well. And I just wonder if we'll have the same the same view of it when it's fifty years later. I, I don't know. Well, what... I think it, there's there's a couple things with that. I mean, again, I'm not a historian; I'm a sports journalist, and we dabbled in history at times. But um, one thing I came across in writing about the football connection is that. You know, the, the Kennedy assassination was, you know, 50 years later, we really don't have a great connection to how uh, earth-shaking an event that was because in 2013, we get earth-shaking events every day that we are connected to uh, through technology and, and by other means. And yet, when, when the Kennedy assassination occurred, nothing like that had happened in a very long time in America, really since Pearl Harbor. Um, world War II was an ongoing um, worldwide uh, uh, tragedy every day with people dying. Um, but in terms of a momentary uh, event, really ha- it had been, you know, 20 years and, and, and Pearl Harbor didn't really occur in the television era, so it was, it was very different. Um, I just think it's hard to grasp how stunning this was to people. Um, things happen now that we hear about and it just there's so much um, so much access to tragedy now uh, through television and, and and digital media that um, it takes a lot to knock people off their bearings. But it, back then it was it, the Kennedy assassination really really stunned people. And uh, you know and and, I, and obviously the Zapruder film wasn't seen that day. Um, it was two years know, or something, right? That it took for some. Yeah, I forget. It took a while. It it yeah. it, um, it it appeared in frame by frame in Life magazine. Um, I think the next week, um, or two weeks later, but I'm not sure how long it took to actually see the film. Yeah, and you're right. Of course, now it would be video minutes later. Right. Yeah, there's video of of everything now. But uh, you, you mentioned about how you wrote in Sports Illustrated this week a really cool article called "In the Games When I'm Well." Cool. That's even <laughs> see. It's it's so weird talking about this because it's like I don't know. But uh, you wrote about about the commissioner's decision to to play the games that weekend, and when I was reading it, it made me think about again nine eleven, which is maybe the the parallel that I take in my life. And I was uh, going to travel to New Orleans for the Saints game the weekend after nine eleven, and uh, it was no big deal at all to, to for me to sacrifice that and and to and to 
to reschedule. The Saints are great. They work with me, and I ended up going. The first home game it was, ended up being against the Vikings just a couple weeks later. But And I was trying to think about what I did that Sunday instead. And it's a lot different because travel was affected by 9-11, and it was a lot different scenario. But when you were, when you were looking into this, what do you think, uh, Commissioner Roselle, what, what was he... What was the yes and no to this playing or not playing? What did he have to decide ultimately? Well, in the story that I wrote, I, I, I actually spent a lot less time on Roselle than I did on the players and on a couple of players in particular. But at the same time, um, it, it became pretty clear that, that, um, that Roselle was, was very confused as to what he should do. And, and he sought the counsel of P.S. Salinger, who was Kennedy's press secretary, and a college classmate of Roselle's, and that Salinger gave him his blessing to go ahead and play, and that and Roselle essentially ran with that, um, and decided to go ahead and play. And and the underlying, um, the underlying reason to do it that that Salinger gave him was that this is this this gives America a chance to heal, while while bonding around an event that everyone loves, which is football, and that and that the Kennedys love football. So it's the right thing to do, and, and Roselle ran with that. Um, as to what would happen if they hadn't played, I, I don't. The guys I talked to who, who played that day, um, and I focused on the Eagles and the Redskins. Right. Um, they, um, they, a lot of them just thought, well, you know, why didn't we just delay a week? You know, the ones that care, the ones that didn't think they should play, they were playing guys who thought it was okay to play, um, and that that's a little bit lost in history. But the, all the players weren't opposed to playing. Um, there were there were quite a few that I found that that were happy to play, um, but but those that didn't thought you know one week we'll just you know let's delay the season a week which I, I think is what happened in nine eleven and then we lost that week uh, that dead week between the super the championship games and the Super Bowl right they just tacked um, the week on at the end we was week two ended up being week eighteen I guess if you might call it that right oh right. okay right yeah yeah so it didn't change the postseason schedule uh, the um. The uh, one interesting thing about reading your article is, is how different a league it was back then. Obviously, it was before the merger, and I thought it was interesting how there was no games on TV. Football is so synonymous with TV now. But yet, you mentioned in the article about how all the stadiums were, were basically full that, that week, that you know right. it didn't stop the, the fans from going out to the games. And you said you focused on some players, a really interesting a story about a fight between two players on the Eagles, and you focused on that and talked about that a lot in the article. Is there a lot of those stories around? Was there a, like I know one thing that's been focused on a lot was, was the Cowboys and how the team from Dallas was was maybe treated that weekend. I want to say they they played the Browns, but I may be making that up. But uh, was there a, was there a lot of different ways like this to go? Was this an extreme example, or was there was there a lot of conflicts or, or stories like this that you could have written about? Well, the one I wrote about um, was, was pretty unique. I mean, the, the fight that the two guys had was about as bad as a, an off-the-field fight has ever been in any sport. So, I mean, that part of it was pretty unique. In terms of the conflict within the teams, I think, again, the thing that comes across here, the, the, um, the, sub, the subtext to the entire incident, writing about, writing about that entire weekend, is that it was just a very different time. And when I got talking to players and said, you know, well, did you want to play? Did you express your feelings about not wanting to play? And to a man, those guys said, no, because players didn't do that in 1963. 
know, it just was a very different time in terms of uh, player activism. It just, uh, you didn't complain about practice time or salaries or, or being told to play two days after the president was shot. You just did what you were told. And, uh, and that, that all would change within the collective bargaining agreement came about five years later, unionizing the NFL. And, and there were a lot changed in the next five to 10 years in America after Kennedy, um, civil rights was just, just becoming, uh, an issue at the forefront uh, for, for mainstream America, but Vietnam was not a big involvement yet. So much changed in the years after that. And, you know, these guys just, you know, they were, a lot of them were deeply uh, saddened by what happened, but, but they, they just felt like they should do what they were told. And, uh, and so, and then, and that's what they did. And then, you know, there was some internal conflict on the Eagles, which was only tangentially related to Kennedy being killed. We're not really sure how exactly it was related, except that it wouldn't have happened if the assassination hadn't happened. So it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to grasp 50 years later, but that's the over what really the overriding issue for me in the entire reporting of the story was how different that time was. You can't report about 1963 as if it's 2013. It's just different. Yeah. I think another example of that, we talked about how, the league was uh, not on TV really yet, and this fight that you focused on between Scotty and Malakis, hopefully I said their names right, it's interesting. Malikas. 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 Okay, yeah. i got to work on my Greek here. Uh, yeah. An interesting thing about that, I thought, was how different it was. These guys were, were playing their football careers, but they weren't certainly set for life after, and they had such, you know, uh, Scotty, I think, went on to do the uh, the entertainment industry and become a multimillionaire. And the Greek player, I won't butcher it again, went on to uh, to be a, a teacher for so many years. It, and it makes yeah, you just think yeah. about what a different world it was that these guys. You always hear about how the players, you know, quote unquote, back in the day, they had jobs in the off season to support themselves, which is crazy to us to think now. The way it's such a twelve month league, these guys had huge lives after this incident and then after their careers. Yeah, and, and just to back, back you know, to to, to back uh, step a little bit, they, the the games were usually on TV on the weekends. Um, CBS CBS was the only broadcast partner back then, and they did telecast regionally every weekend, but not that weekend uh, because they they broadcast news of the Kennedy uh, assassination even on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why the, that's why the Oswald Jack Ruby uh, shooting was was broadcast live. Um, so it, it was just that weekend that games weren't telecast. Um, and, and the stadiums were all full. But, yeah, you're right. Players made, you know, I think, you know, I talked to various guys. They all seem to be making between eight or nine and twelve or $15,000 a year for the season, which obviously in 2013 dollars is a lot more than that, but it's still most, they all did work in the off season um, at some kind of job. And there was the one note in the article about how the one player had an autograph signing that he wasn't going to miss because it paid $50 for the day. Yeah, on Friday, on the day of the assassination, Maxie Bond from the Eagles, he, he, he hustled out of practice and heard about the assassination on his car radio as he was driving to an autograph signing in uh, downtown Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't, he, again, you know, he didn't, his, his, his impulse wasn't to turn around and go home. It was to go ahead and sign the autographs. And he said he can't remember how many people showed up, but he remembers he was getting either 50 or $25 for the autograph signing. So he wasn't going to 
he was going to go honor his commitment and get his check for that, and that's what he did. When you were writing this column, did you think back to your own personal experience? Did you think about, I know you were, I want to say I looked in it, you graduated high school in, I think, 74, is that right? Right, yeah. So you were still pretty young. Yeah, Yeah. I was was seven when uh, when Kennedy was shot. Do you recall much Uh, about it at all, or? Uh, a little bit. I mean, the, the, my memories are so, I mean, again, I was, you know, I was alive, but I was so young that, you know, I, I, I probably was, you know, five or seven years short of having a real distinct memory of it. You know, I mean, I have a much clearer memory of, of, uh, of, of Dr. King being killed and Bobby Kennedy and, uh, and the moonwalk in 69. And, and then things start to become much clearer for me as I was a teenager. But at age seven, all I really remember was, was getting dismissed from school and coming home and, and seeing my grandmother, who was, you know, probably at the time she was uh, in her 60s or maybe 70s, probably in her 70s. And uh, and she was a, a very devout Irish Catholic lady, and she was just crying. And I'd never seen her cry. You know, she's a tough lady. You know, she's uh, been a minor league baseball wife when she was younger, and, you know, she was just, she was tough. And she was, I'd never seen her crying. She was crying, and... Uh, I didn't really get that, and I kind of saw what had happened, and uh, you know, didn't realize really what what Kennedy meant to certain people because again, I was too young to connect with that. So it was. Uh, but I remember the day, and I, on Sunday, I remember being in the house, um, and that, that my father wasn't watching football because there wasn't going to be football, and, and and being in the neighborhood of, of the TV when when Oswald got shot, and really, that's it. That's all I remember. Huh. It's interesting that you remember specifically about the games not being on. That's that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I don't, and I don't know why. Maybe, and maybe that's a re- reconstructed memory because now I found out that they weren't on. Right. Um, but you know, I remember that the TV was on that, at that time, and, and that Oswald was shot. You know, you did mention it briefly in the article about how the rest of the sports world reacted to this, and I, I think. The NFL is so distinctly remembered for making their specific decision, but they weren't different from the rest of the leagues, from what I recall, right? Most leagues continued on with their schedules? Um, some did, some didn't. Uh, most college games were, were called off, at least major college games. I'm not sure what, like, B3 games. Uh, but most college games were called off. Uh, the NBA and NHL both played right through the weekend. Uh, the AFL, which was... Didn't obviously right. a significant yeah. football league, but was fairly young at that time. Um, they did not play their games; they called their entire slate off. Um, so that 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 uh, juxtaposition was significant to, to the to the country, seeing that the AFL called their games off and the NFL did not. Um, so you know, we'll see. That we'll, people could see that, make that comparison, and, and there was criticism. Um, in the media, but it just wasn't as strident as it would be now. You know, it's really interesting because I, I initially read the article on the iPad version of Sports Illustrated, which I always rave about because I think Sports Illustrated really comes to life on the iPad. I, I love it. And uh, after your article, there's a, a bonus, a bonus article about Kennedy and what a huge sports fan he was. Yeah, and. Um, it goes into talking about the different sports, obviously, that he played and how uh, sports is a big part of the, the the Kennedy family and almost kind of hammers away the point made by, did you say it was one of the press secretaries that had given the advice to play, that this is kind of what 
Kennedy will want. Did you did you did you look into Kennedy as a sports fan at all? And kind of well, it was yeah. I mean, it was well known um, that he was a big sports fan, um, and and really, again, that's another thing that doesn't seem unusual now. Um, Especially you know, our current but, president, right? Yeah, the last two, really. The current president, right. you know, and, yeah. and, and and George W. Bush right. and, and Clinton, they were they were all um, they were all pretty big fans. Reagan was a fan. Um, you know, I mean, it was it's become sort of commonplace for for the president of the United States to to be a big sports fan. And I guess it wasn't at the time. Eisenhower had preceded Kennedy. I'd, there was just a sense that you know that it was a new thing, and. Uh, and it was a, and sure, you know, I, you know, I was aware of that. Um, at, at the same time, you know, the guys from the Eagles said that Bobby Kennedy came to their, came to a, into their locker room the next year and told them that they did the right thing by playing. And, um, you know, this, that's what my brother would have wanted. And again, there's no way to know because Bobby Kennedy's not alive. And, uh, and, and there's no way to know exactly what, you know, if he did that just to absolve the Eagles of any guilt, they might've still felt or, uh, or why he might have done that, or really meant it, um, you know. And, and and plenty of people have said also that just because, okay, suppose the Kennedy family did think it was right to play, well, that doesn't mean that that was the right decision. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it still may have been the wrong thing to do nationwide. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't have a strong opinion. I probably feel like they shouldn't have played, but I understand that it's not as clear cut a decision as some people make it. The Sportscaster is finishing up with Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at SI Tim Layden. His article, JFK, the Sunday the NFL played on, is in this week's edition of Sports Illustrated, the November 25th issue that features uh, A.J. McCarron on the cover, an article written by our friend John Wertheim. Uh, you know, we were talking about President Kennedy and what a huge sports fan he was, and it, and it makes me uh, think about the current president and what a huge sports fan he is. I always, I've always said one of my favorite things about President Obama is how he's sort of humanized the presidency a little bit in the sense that he just seems like such a regular guy to me. The president can sometimes tend to feel so, so worldly or so different than me, and he just seems to, to be so, so, so like a guy's guy, a guy you you'd hang out with in a bar or whatever. And I think that is something that's really similar between him and Kennedy, if you know what I'm saying. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, the Kennedy presidency, which was short, you know, he was only, you know, he hadn't reached the three-year mark yet, or he had been just elected three years earlier, in a very, very, very close election, um, you know, the closest in history until um, Bush until and Gore. Bush right? and, Gore. Yeah. and um, but the Kennedy presidency, I don't know if Kennedy had that same kind of accessibility in terms of the public. He was, you know, he had, had a beautiful wife, and there was this whole Camelot uh thing about their presidency, which which may, you know, again, we've learned things about Kennedy since then that, that may have made that seem like something of a, of, of a, of a facade, but at the same time, I, I think they were considered royalty by a lot of America, and, you know, that's a little different from accessibility, but there was, there was certainly a glow about the guy to a certain part of the, part of the nation. Um, even guys, you know, I talked to a couple guys that, uh, that, that, played in those games that weekend who, who just said right out, well, I didn't vote for the guy, um, but, but I respected him, and he seemed like a good guy, and, and uh, seemed like he was a good president, and, you know, it's, uh, I don't, I guess their, their politics weren't as divisive as maybe they are now, but, 
but clearly there was there was a at that time before we learned anything more about the man there was, there was a there was a certain aura about him of, of that, that led people to have have certain hopes and dreams for the future and uh, and it may have been a little naive but but that was America in 1963 thank you so much for this really appreciate the time okay thanks a lot All right, I want to thank Tim Layden for making his third appearance in the Sportscasters. It's always great to have Mr. Layden in. All right, greatest of all time. Don and I will make three declarations each to something being the greatest of all time in a category of our choosing, and Don will get us kicked off for today. All right, my first one, I don't know how familiar you are with this in particular, but my, the greatest South Park character of all time is Randy Marsh, Stan's father. Uh, he's hysterical. Con- Consistently hysterical, too. Which one of the fathers was the one who was on the Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> that was Randy Marsh. <laughs> okay. That's a good a good support for your for your argument right there. Yeah, he, he just gets himself into ridiculous scenarios. Recently, he became a mall cop uh, during Black Friday, but he did it so he could jump ahead in line and the main man in charge of the mall cops got murdered and just <laughs> Randy's always getting himself into ridiculous stuff. And he's, he's the greatest South Park character of all time. Now I know you're a family guy fan. What do you think about the big news that they killed off one of their main characters? You know, what? I don't watch it. Uh, whatever current that often I catch it in reruns all the time. And I, I have the first few seasons on box set, but I did happen to have that on, but I caught it from the middle. And when Brian was dead, I just assumed it was some sort of like, Okay, they're setting up some sort of time travel thing, which they've done in the past. Like Stewie killed Lois in one episode, and it turned out to be like a dream simulation. And uh, Stewie's traveled in time before because he got killed when a bomb he planted blew up. And uh, I just assumed it was nothing. And then I see like memorials to Brian all over the internet. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be a long term thing. My guess is no. Uh, he's kind of the liberal voice on the show to. Stewie's conservative voice, so I don't know. I don't know if they need him or not, but yeah. Interesting. All right. First one for me, the greatest college football rivalry of all time. I thought long and hard about this. I basically got it down to three. Texas versus Oklahoma. Okay. Michigan versus Ohio State. And Alabama versus Auburn. Okay. And I thought about... What about Army-Navy? You eliminated because they're not that good? Army-Navy was one that... I thought about it as well. When I got it down to five, it didn't make it to my cut of three. Okay. But it was there, just kind of eliminated because it it's has no, no impact right. on college football. Has they itself. ever been good? I mean, I imagine like back. Yeah, I mean, I know. Way back when they were probably good. There was times where they were good, but those times are long gone. Sure. So I'm going to settle on Alabama versus Auburn. And I don't know if I'm saying that because. Alabama is going through a stretch of being the most important team in college football, or if I'm saying that because these people in Alabama don't think rationally when it comes to this rivalry. (laughs) There is someone who's either sitting in jail now or is recently in jail for killing historical trees 
on one of the campuses. Oh, brilliant. And then calling in a talk show host to brag about, to it? Brag about it. Brilliant. And ending up in prison. And the, the, the rivalry, which you think has gone as far as it could, is only going to take another turn as this week or this year for the first time Alabama and Auburn are playing a winner-take-all game for the right to play for the SEC. Oh, okay. So whoever wins that game is going to end up in the SEC championship game against, I think, Missouri, and then the winner of that will probably be in the national championship game. Wow, yeah. So Auburn wasn't good for a little while, right? Nope, they've definitely had stretches where they were down. Cam Newton is a big part of this rivalry's recent history. Okay, right. You know, obviously Nick Saban is a big part of the rivalry recently. The trees, sports <laughs> media, just everything about this is just at a different level. Ohio State and Michigan will probably be number two for me. And I think OU and Texas gets hurt by the fact that they never play on their campuses. Oh. They always play in a neutral site in Texas. And I think there's something lost when the winning team in the rivalry can never look back at a special moment in their stadium defeating the other team. But I think this is one we could get a lot of arguments either way for. So email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at sports underscore casters. I'm going to say the greatest college football rivalry of all time is the Iron Bowl, Alabama versus Auburn. My second thing uh, comes on the heels of the news that, and I don't remember the title, Dumb and Number 2, T-O, yep. has wrapped filming. So now It's in the can. It's, yeah, it's in the hands of the editors and all those fancy people that do all the behind-the-scenes stuff. So is this stuff. a summer film? It, this is the greatest Jim Carrey film of all time. Okay. And I'm going to say it is the first Dumb and Dumber. Right. Uh at first, when I thought that, I thought, okay, that's obvious. But he actually has a lot of really good movies that are in the argument. I think if you're going to go just as a pure movie, I think The Truman Show, you can make a pretty good argument The Truman for. Show would be the one that would possibly prevent me from saying Dumb and Dumber, but it's one of the two for me. Right. Yeah, that's where I fell, too. I, I know some people might say, uh, if they like the mind-bendy Eternal Sunshine, that was pretty different and cool. Uh, Liar Liar and Ace Ventura were good, but not in this category. Man on the Moon Man is pretty moon, good, but probably yeah. not as good as The Truman Show and maybe a similar film. Yep, I think that's exactly, I think we follow the same way on this. But Dumb and Dumber, greatest Jim Carrey movie of all time, maybe greatest Jeff Daniels movie of all time. Probably. <laughs> I, 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 we, me and Anthony were joking about how grown up uh, Lloyd Christmas's best friend is now that he's a He's news anchor. A, yeah, yeah. You know? What why couldn't I remember what is Jeff Daniels character's name? Harry. Harry Dunn. I yeah. couldn't remember it all day today. Harry. Yeah, a new Harry Lloyd Dunn. Christmas. That's yeah. right. All right. Uh so it's that season. Not just the holidays, but also award shows. Okay. Right? The AMAs were on the other day. Sure. And the big news from the AMAs is that Miley Cyrus uh sang with a cat. I, I hadn't heard that somehow. Yeah. It must have been all over the internet. I just uh, you know a couple of weeks after her appearance on the European MTV Awards, where she smoked a joint. Okay. You know, and uh, pretty soon it'll be time for the Oscars, and <laughs> you know, there's all these different award shows. But I'm going to say that the greatest television award show of all time was the 1992 Video Music Awards, and I don't see how anything is even close. This might have been one of the greatest nights in televised music history. So you might not remember much about the 1992 Music Awards, so let me remind you. Uh, this is it was, MTV's? Yes, it was okay. the MTV, VMAs. VMAs. Right. 
1992. It aired on September 9th from the Pauley Pavilion in Los Angeles. Dana Carvey was the host. The host. Okay. The Video of the Year Award was won by Van Halen's Right Now. Okay. Slightly edging out Let's Get Rocked by Def Leppard. Okay. Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, which I, I guarantee in retrospect MTV Wishes would have won it. Sure. And Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So everyone knows that nobody really cares about the awards in these award shows anyway. What makes them good or great is who appears and who performs. And I will put this list of performers up against any list of performers for a television show you want to give me. Okay. Listen to this. The Black Crows played Remedy. Bobby Brown played Humpin' Around. (laughs) All right. U2 performed even better than The Real Thing live via satellite from their concert in Detroit. Okay. Def Leppard played Let's Get Rocked. Nirvana played Lithium with a Rape Me intro. Okay. Elton John played The One. Pearl Jam played Jeremy. The Red Hot Chili Peppers played Give It Away. Michael Jackson, the King of Pop, played Black or White live from his Dangerous Tour in London. Or, yes, London. Uh, Brian Adams played Do I Have to Say the Words. In Vogue played Free Your Mind. Eric Clapton played Tears in Heaven. And to close the night, Guns N' Roses and Elton John played November Rain. So I don't know how you compete with Guns N' Roses, November Rain, U2, even better than The Real Thing, Pearl Jam, Jeremy, Nirvana, Lithium. There was that one where the... Michael uh, Jackson, Black or White. I mean, what... There was the one year that Garbage performed, and you could see the lead singer's nipple because she turned sideways and had a loose-fitting shirt on. Oh. So that would have to be up there. That too. might be the number one nip slip of all time. Possibly. Although Tara Reed's nip slip is pretty legendary. Yeah, yeah, that was on a runway for Yeah, red right? carpet, I red think. Red carpet, that's what I mean. Yeah. But And not only that, so all those great performances, this uh-huh. is also the night that Howard Stern propelled from the, the ceiling fart man? as Fartman. <laughs> wow. Yeah, when you talk about, like, just pop like effect as far as pop culture goes boy those are some big names even like you don't hear about like in vogue now but they were monsters back then they were huge you know who performed and the thing too is now these award show it's just pop it's real bubble gummy right it's choreographed dancing except for like the foo fighters i guess still get play on these things a little bit i mean it's miley cyrus and lady gaga and all that crap it's like (laughs) You know, and this this had it all. It had the King of Pop and Michael Jackson performing. It had legendary bands like U2. It had Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. It had hippie band like the Black Crows. It had other pop acts you had to like pick Bobby the, Brown and In Vogue. If you had to pick the worst act of the night or the most meh part of the night, who is it? Well, it's, it's either In Vogue or Brian Adams. I yeah, I'm going Brian Adams. Yeah, it's one yeah. of the two. It's a who cares segment of the right. show. But, all right. Yeah. My third thing will be the most controversial thing probably that I say today. I'm going to say that by the time his career is done, so he's not there yet, but by the time his career is done with another Olympics run, uh, hopefully medal run under his belt, I will say Ryan Miller will go down as the greatest U.S.-born goalie of all time. We talked about this a little bit before. His main competition is Mike Richter and Tom Tom Barrasso, and probably at this point the only thing he's not going to have that they do is a cup. cup. Richter won his with the Rangers in 94. Barrasso won the two with the Penguins in the early 90s. Doesn't look like Miller's going to get a cup right now. Was Dominic Hasek a better goalie because he won a cup in Detroit? No. 
That that's my argument about goalies. Patrick Waugh was probably largely responsible for a lot of the cups they won, especially '93 with the ten straight overtime wins. Right. Whereas I'm not sure I would say Hashik was the main reason they won in Detroit. I think Hashik's the best goalie I've ever seen, but I don't think he becomes better because he won that cup. Miller might need that though because he's not on Hashik's plane. You know, Richter won the '96 <laughs> World Cup for Team USA. Never. Won in Olympics. Ryan Miller, you got a strong case there. And like you said, it's an incomplete resume, but... This is kind of a prediction for a greatest of all time. Yeah. When I was thinking about award shows, I was also thinking about my frustration with critics. Uh, Movie critics, music critics. We had a music critic on in the summer. The uh, music critic for Grantland. Right. I'm going to say the greatest movie critic of all time is Roger e- or Robert Ebert. No, Roger. Roger. I'm sorry. Siskel and Ebert. Right. The Ebert part. Right. Roger. <laughs> sorry about that. Roger Ebert, the greatest movie critic of all time. I read an obituary for him that his wife wrote in this month's Esquire, maybe, a magazine I get for free. Okay. Through. He just passed away this year. And he really lived an incredible life. And he really brought the idea of being a movie critic a little bit more mainstream. Uh him and Siskel, obviously, together with their show. I used to always watch that. And he was not afraid to... He's not the kind of movie critic that only thought these great artsy films were worthy of our time. He was also willing to talk about other movies, movies that people actually go out and pay to see. And he also showed incredible courage being a movie critic right to the end while battling cancer. And He lost his jaw or something, right? Yeah, he yeah. lost his jaw. And he had... You know, he just... I don't know, between the courage and the way that he, like, we kind of talked about bringing things to the the impact. My last one, the impact it had on pop culture. Right, right. It's hard to say that a critic uh, like Mr. Ebert had as much impact. Yeah, none uh, that I can think of. Yeah, so Roger Ebert, the greatest movie critic of all time. The 1992 MTV VMA is the greatest television award show of all time. And the greatest college football rivalry, Alabama versus Auburn. Greatest South Park character of all time is Randy Marsh. The greatest Jim Carrey movie of all time is Dumb and Dumber. And at the end of his career, the greatest U.S.-born goalie will be Ryan Miller. All right, real quick book club update. We got three books going this month, three good ones. Uh, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Masked Man of Grantland and Deadspin. A really cool wrestling book. David was nice enough to come in a couple weeks ago. Be on the podcast. He did four, 50 minutes with me on the book and wrestling. You can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, wherever you find podcasts. Again, the book is The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by David Shoemaker. In a couple of minutes, we're going to welcome uh, Larry J. Sabato from the University of Virginia, who has a book called The Kennedy Half Century, The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of JFK. And next week or the week after, Richard Cohen, the author of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and The Wild Heart of Football will join us to talk about that. So three books this month, The Squared Circle by David Shoemaker, Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and The Wild Heart of Football, and The Kennedy Half Century by our next guest, Larry J. Sabato.
Our next guest is the founder and director of the renowned Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. His book, The Kennedy Half Century, has been at the forefront here in the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the president, and he's nice enough to spend a few minutes with us today for the first time. Welcome, Mr. Larry Sabato to the Sportscasters. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were just talking before we got started about what a crazy couple of weeks it's been in terms of being a historian who who focuses on the the Kennedy assassination. And I just wonder if, with it being the 50-year, 50, 50 I guess anniversary is the word, although that seems a bit strange, but 50 years later, are you surprised at all how important this still is to the nation? A nation that moves so quickly from thing to thing that something that happened 50 years ago is still so important to everyone? Well, I was surprised that it was this intense. Frankly, I undertook this study uh, five years ago because I knew this would be a big deal. I just didn't know how big a deal it would be. And the reason I knew it would be a big deal, in, in anybody's lifetime, there are only a few flashbulb moments. All right? Uh, for my father's generation, it was Pearl Harbor. For my generation, it was the Kennedy assassination. For your generation, it's, it's 9-11. What's a flashbulb moment? It's a day with events so shocking that years later, decades later, you can remember where you were, what you were doing, who you were talking with, what happened for days thereafter. And, and so naturally, as time goes on, even though, as you say, the world spins forward, uh, people like to revisit the past, those key moments in their past, and, you know, for my generation, uh, this event 50 years ago was the moment. You know, it, it seems like we take these these anniversaries, you know, that I'm sure t- 25 years ago at the 25th anniversary, there was this intense period of examination of the assassination. And I can recall the uh, the intensity when it was the 40th and the 45th and now the 50th. How do you think over the 50 years the nation's overall opinion of the events has changed or stayed the same? Well, you've had two evolutions. One is an evolution of John F. Kennedy's image. Um, you know, it, for a good decade after the assassination, he was he was St. John the Kennedy. You know, you, you could not say anything critical about him. And then we started to learn about all the womanizing. Uh, Then we started to learn about all the details of his health problems that had been kept from the American public and so on. And so his image changed really for the worse for a while. The funny thing is I I believe as time has gone on, his image has improved again. It's not that people think, you know, his his, uh, almost predatory womanizing was a good thing. Uh, it's rather that you put the yin and yang back together for any human being. You start to view them as a whole. So that's one thing that happened. The the assassination is something uh, very different. We've learned an awful lot in the past 50 years about what happened on November 22nd, what happened before November 22nd. Uh, it's taken a long time to put the pieces together, and we still don't have all the pieces. There are, for example, tens of thousands of pages of CIA documents that won't be released until October of 2017. Now, you know, something was going on with the CIA in this assassination. I'm not saying they did it, 
But I'm saying they knew a lot more about Lee Harvey Oswald and some other key players in this than they've ever admitted. And almost everybody on all sides of this agrees with that. You know, I know that for, for, for as long as we've been talking about this, the polls have shown that a majority of Americans believe that there was some kind of conspiracy. Somehow it was more than just Oswald. But I felt like just taking a general pulse of everything I've seen and all the people that I've heard, it seems like more than any this year, there seems to be somewhat of a maybe an acceptance like, okay, maybe it was just this one guy capable of altering our lives so profoundly. Do you get that sense at all that maybe some people are being, I don't know if I want to say beaten into submission or maybe just giving up a little bit on the conspiracy or am I, am I taking it wrong? Well, no, I think there is some of that. Um, my own survey for the Kennedy Half Century showed that 75% don't believe Oswald acted alone. A couple of other polls this year showed it was around 60%. Now, it could just be different polling methods, but it might mean that there has been a diminution of those who, who believe in conspiracy. Look, my own view is, and I, I studied this intensely, not just for the past five years. I've really been interested in it since 1963. Uh, and, and my own view has evolved. I, I was very suspicious uh, of Oswald just acting alone for a long while, and I, I was looking into the mafia, and I looked into the CIA, and I looked into the anti-Castro Cubans, and I looked into Castro. and you know, there, there are a lot of different trails that you can go down. And truthfully, all of these groups and individuals had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to kill President Kennedy, in part because the security was so lax. But you see, just because you have the means, motive, and opportunity doesn't mean you did it. There is one person I know for sure, not 95% sure, but 100% sure, was involved in this and fired the gun, and his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, I am very unhappy that some people are trying to make him out to be an innocent or even a hero. No, he is a cold-blooded murderer. He decapitated American government. He killed John F. Kennedy in the most brutal way on an American street in front of his wife. That is the truth. Now, the remaining question is this. Uh, did Oswald have anyone encouraging him? Anyone helping him? Did he even tell anybody about what he was going to do and that person or persons not report it? That's a different dimension entirely. You know, your book, The Kennedy Half Century, breaks some new ground with some new never-before-revealed evidence that you revealed in the book. Can you talk a little bit about the process of uncovering that evidence? Certainly. Um, it, was, it was a very intense and expensive process. We spent a small fortune on it, and I don't even want to tell you what it was. So I'll probably be paying it off for the rest of my life. But nonetheless, what we did, we went to the National Archives, and after great difficulty, we managed to get all of the audio files from the day of the assassination. Now, what are the audio files? They are the recordings made at police headquarters on some old instruments called dictabelts and gray autographs. They were used commonly by police departments uh, back in that day. And on November 22nd in Dallas, they had two of them operating, two channels operating. So they recorded everything that was going on that police were reporting. Anytime a policeman uh, in a squad car or a motorcycle uh, had, had the button pushed in so that the recording was taking place, 
That was recorded back at headquarters. Well, back in the 1970s, the second major investigation of the Kennedy assassination was conducted by the House of Representatives. And after a three-year study, they contradicted and revoked the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Instead, they said that Kennedy was killed as the result of a conspiracy. How did they reach that conclusion? Because they took the dicta belt that was operating at the time that Kennedy was shot, 12.30 p.m. on November 22nd. They said that the recording was made because a policeman following the limousine had a stuck microphone, and it recorded the gunshots. They found four gunshots. Everybody on all sides agrees that Lee Harvey Oswald only had time to fire three, three shots. And furthermore, they identified the location of the four shot as being the grassy knoll behind the picket fence. Well, that's a conspiracy. There's just one problem. We have much more advanced techniques today, and we hired the best audio analysts in the world. They're a group called Sonalists. Uh, they spent many, many months, and we spent many months with them analyzing the, that dicta belt. We found out, in fact, there are no gunshots at all on the dicta belt. It was recorded two and a half miles away from the assassination site. There was zero chance that a gunshot sound could have traveled the two and a half miles. Not possible, uh, given the quality of the microphone. So we, we've negated this three-year study which is one of the underpinnings of conspiracy. It's been used for years and years to say, you see, there's scientific proof of a conspiracy. No, there isn't. We have proven it absolutely. Every expert that has looked at our report has said we've blown up the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Fascinating. You know, one thing that, I don't know if it's brand new, but one thing that seemed to have gotten a lot more steam this year, a lot more coverage, or maybe I'm just imagining that, but this idea that maybe one of the Secret Service men may have accidentally fired the fatal shot, do you give that any credence at all? Uh, no, it, it is absurd. It okay. is outrageous. Sounds absurd. No, I, you know, seriously, I want you to know something. There are over 300, 300 separate theories about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and the vast majority of them are malarkey. They're poppycock, and that's one of them. It's silly, it's stupid, and it's got to stop. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's, what are some other ones that we can put in that category? Well, believe it or not, there's, there are some who say Jackie arranged it oh, to no. get back at, at uh, President Kennedy for his womanizing. Just absurd. Uh, there are others who say uh, that there was a gunman in the sewer right there uh, on Elm Street where Kennedy was assassinated right in front of uh, the school book depository. Well, we've looked at that. You know what? You don't even have a line sight to, to the automobile, the top of the automobile, to fire off a shot from the sewer. I mean, there, there are so many weird theories. Uh, oh, the, oh uh, George H.W. Bush was spotted on the, on the steps of the, uh, of the school book depository. No, it's somebody who looks like George H.W. Bush. It is not George H.W. Bush. The photo has been blown up to the point where we can see it's not George H.W. Bush. And on and on and on. 
If the Kennedy Half Century, your book, is possibly the definitive book on this topic, what is the what documentary or film or piece of video do you think is the one that would be the most enlightening, the most accurate, the most worthwhile of your time about this uh, particular assassination? Well, clearly it's the Zapruder film. Uh, thank God Abraham Zapruder was where he was and maintained his cool uh, during the assassination. Because remember, bullets were flying. Other people were diving to the ground. But he stayed steady with the help of his assistant, Marilyn Stutzman. She steadied him. Uh, and he was able to keep that uh, video camera moving. Think about where we would be today without the Zapruder film. Those 26 seconds uh, at least give us a basis for theorizing about the assassination. And I think in the future, uh, as ballistics research and other kind of technological advances are made, uh, it may very well be the ultimate Rosetta Stone. Yeah, you know, I find that to be such a fascinating thing. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen the the, the stabilized HD version that has they've worked on yeah. for this year. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's so I feel like we've seen it maybe so many times that what's actually being played on it, we're almost numb to it. But, I mean, if you had to describe it to someone in words, you almost couldn't do it. It's it's so it's such a shocking, shocking piece of video. Oh, it's so, so horrible. And again, see, this is the difference in generations. If you can believe this, because it's true, we never saw the Zapruder film until 1975. Remember, the assassination was in 1963. It was 12 years before the American public saw it, and it had to be bootlegged in order for us to see it. Uh, the government was able to keep so many things secret from us back in those days, and, and we were like sheep for the most part. It was the Cold War era, and we followed instructions. Now, we saw a few frames that were published in Life magazine and, and elsewhere uh, in the 1960s, but they... They cleaned them up. They wouldn't show us the definitive frames because they were so horrible. This is not just the life of a man and a husband and a father being ended in a horrible way on Elm Street. It is truly the decapitation of American government. You've got to understand, back in that time, we thought this was the beginning of World War III. We thought it was the communists. And, and they were beginning a, a world war. They had decapitated the government. It was going to be a lot easier for them to secure a first strike uh, nuclear against the United States. This was, this was the most frightening day, even more so than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Larry Sabato is the author of a book called The Kennedy Half Century, The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of John F. Kennedy. You also have a, an online class, correct, called JFK Class, can you, and that can be accessed by even non-students at the University of Virginia? Absolutely. It's for everybody. We've had tens of thousands enrolled. It's on permanently at iTunes U, Apple's iTunes U. And you don't have to take class, uh, the exams, you don't do anything. You can watch the videos. And we have we spent eight months on this thing, got it done uh, just before it started in October. And we cover Kennedy's career, his presidency, the assassination, and the 50 years since. How have other presidents, his nine successors in the White House, used his words and his deeds to help them accomplish their own agendas? And there's some fascinating stories in there. It's all free. 
It's, uh, it's a service of, of the University of Virginia Center for Politics, and we're very proud of it. It's, uh, it's gotten very high ratings, one of the highest ratings ever for an online class. So check it out at iTunes U. All right, very last thing. So let's say uh, the president comes to you and says, all right, we're going to give you five minutes or two minutes on the air here tonight. You're going to give the final word. We're done debating this. You're going to set everyone straight. Who did it? How do they do it? Why do they do it? In a really concise manner. The assassination was carried out by a loner and a loser named Lee Harvey Oswald, a 24-year-old who failed at everything he had ever done. And even though it doesn't seem logical that the most powerful man on earth could be killed by someone so insignificant, it is true. And history is replete with examples of major events major transformations uh, being steered or even carried out by insignificant people. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. All right, I want to thank Larry Sabato and Tim Layden for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can check out our previous episodes like last week's with Katie Baker and Jack McDowell or the week before with Artie Lang on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us, thesportscasters, at gmail. All right, one more thing from me this week, short and sweet. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to all the listeners out there, and if you are going to go shopping, do it safely. I saw something on Facebook today. And I kind of liked it. I can't remember the stores exactly. I think one of them was Home Depot. But a lot of stores are actually closing their doors, saying that we want our employees to go home and enjoy themselves and not have to stand in crowds of people. And if you are going to go out, play nice, people. Uh, you're going to save 50 bucks on something you're going to wait in line for five hours for, 10 hours for. Put some value on your time. Stay inside. And uh, if you are going to go out, though, just just be nice to people. Yeah, I don't have much more to add either. I was going to go the Thanksgiving route. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Enjoy family and football and food. And uh, like Don said, be nice out in the shopping world. Enjoy the malls. Enjoy a nice, long American. It's one of the better weekends, I guess, to be American. You know, just take uh, take some time off, kick your feet up. And uh, happy Thanksgiving from Don and I here at the Sportscasters.